peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Greetings everybody out there in dreamland. Namaste and shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. Thank you all very much for listening to another episode of the Beyond Top Secret Texan Podcast. I am your host, the Beyond Top Secret Texan, broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast with the most, the Gulf Coast of Texas. Thank you, listeners, new and old alike, everyone out there in dreamland. If you would like to follow my daily updates on social media visit the merch store visit the podpage.com slash beyond top secret Texan webpage official webpage for the podcast as well as join the telegram group and whatever there is else to join such as the youtube channel tiktok etc the only link you're going to need is linktree slash beyond top secret Texan. All one word, lowercase. Linktree slash beyond top secret Texan. The only link you'll ever need. Listing all my activity across all my many platforms, as well as all the different places where my podcast is uploaded. But even then, not all the places because I'm uploaded every place over two dozen podcast providers host the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast but if you have a preference for an app or a service or a directory that I the Beyond Top Secret Texan is not uploaded on or hosted on yet Send me a DM or message on my social media, and I will correct that as fast as possible by contacting them with my RSS uploading link. I'm trying to reach as many of you all great folks out there making up the Vox Populi of Earth as possible. So if you share this episode, as well as any other, or a video I've made, or a video I've shared, a tweet, Instagram post, whatever, if you would like to share that information with your friends, co-workers, co-conspirators, loved ones, etc., well, I'd be much obliged.
not as obliged as if you leave the like and subscribed. A five-star rating would be much appreciated. And it helps me out more than you know. If you would like to jump off the fence of the hesitator or the spectator and feel like my work deserves a tip or at least a little incentive, a little thank you, go ahead and donate to Cash App. Cash App beyond Top Secret Texan. All one word, lowercase. It's much appreciated. Every dollar goes into the funding of this independent journalistic effort. Continuing the series of UFO accounts from history available on NICAP's NICAP.org website. We will focus today on this episode on three cases that occurred on the Atlantic seaboard very close to each other geographically, basically next door to each other in terms of actual distance. But in terms of secure airspace, trained personnel, military installations, vigilance of security forces, and importance to the nation culturally in terms of authority and public perception of the UFO phenomenon could not be two greater examples of the enclave of highly disciplined civic leaders and uniformed personnel. The two cities on the Atlantic seaboard are Norfolk, Virginia. Norfolk, if you were a U.S. Navy service personnel member or a local, lucky enough to be born in the Hampton Roads area. I kid, it's actually a very beautiful country. I loved it so much. Now that I am out of there, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And Washington, D.C. We'll read them in chronological order as they occurred. And hopefully I do not have to elaborate too much as to the significance of this historical UFO flap. (coughs) Excuse me. 
getting over the Sahara dust, which is currently blowing across the Atlantic Ocean and Gulf of Mexico, just so that it could land right across everything in a thick coating of Saharan dust. This case was number six of Major Dewey Fornet's motion study. His UFO cases, as presented to the Robertson panel in January of 1953, whereby he deduced the UFOs were guided by intelligence and the flight characteristics indicated that intelligence was beyond us in its piloting. It's also case number 24 on the official clearance list of 41 formerly classified Air Technical Intelligence UFO reports cleared for Major Donald E. Kehoe by Albert M. Chop, Air Force Press Desk. July 14, 1952. 20 to 25 miles north of Norfolk, Virginia. At 9.12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Pan American Airways FO Flight Officer William B. Nash, 2nd Officer William H. Fortenberry, in a DC-4 airliner at 8,000 feet, heading 200 degrees magnetic North sighted a total of eight large, round, glowing, red, coin-shaped objects, 100 feet in diameter each, and approximately 15 feet thick. Maneuvering in two groups of three, they then joined slightly after one another. Objects approaching headed on a high-speed estimate a high speed estimated at about 12,000 to 27,000 miles per hour at about 2,000 foot altitude, about 2 degrees depression angle, silhouetted against the ground to a position almost directly below the airliner in a stack formation, then suddenly making a 150 degree hairpin turn like balls bouncing off a wall joined by two more identical but much brighter red objects which came from behind on the right under the aircraft at about the same 2,000 foot altitude as the first six objects joining formation by falling in behind all silhouetted against the black background of Baywater with one moment when all eight objects blacked out, then reappeared at about 10 miles south of Newport News, the objects ascended as a group in fixed formation in an arc to the right towards Newport News to about 10,000 foot altitude, about 0.4 degrees above level, or about 2 degrees above the horizon line. out to disappearance by blinking out randomly. After covering a total distance of roughly 90 miles from start to finish, 
35 miles on approach, 55 miles to departure. There were as many as seven ground observers. The detailed report is as follows. The 1952 Nash-Fortenberry sighting, or the 1952 Norfolk sighting, as it's known in popular literature. On the evening of July 14, 1952, a Pan-American World Airways DC-4 was on a routine flight, ferrying from New York to Miami with 10 passengers and a crew of three, including Captain F.V. Kopke, First Officer William B. Nash, and Second Officer William H. Fortenberry. The sun had set an hour before through the coastline was still visible, and the night was clear and almost entirely dark. With the aircraft set on automatic pilot while cruising at 8,000 feet over the Chesapeake Bay, approaching Norfolk, Virginia, they were due to fly over the VRF radio range station in six minutes and make a position report. In the meantime, since there was a Furtenberry's first run on this course, Nash, in the left pilot seat, was orienting Fortenberry by pointing out landmarks and the distant lights of cities along the route. Nash had just pointed out the city of Newport News and Cumberland ahead and to the right of the plane when unexpectedly a red-orange brilliance appeared near the ground beyond and slightly east of Newport News. The brilliance seemed to have appeared all of a sudden and both pilots witnessed the startling appearance at practically the same moment. In the excitement, someone blurted out, what the hell is that? Captain Nash later described their initial observations. Almost immediately, we perceived that it consisted of six bright objects streaking toward us at tremendous speed and obviously well below us. They had the fiery aspect of hot coals, but a much greater globe, perhaps 20 times more brilliant than any of the scattered ground lights over which they passed or the city lights to the right. Their shape was clearly outlined and evidently circular. The edges were all well-defined, not phosphoric or fuzzy in the least, and the red-orange color was uniform over the upper surface of each craft. Within the few seconds that it took the objects to come half the distance from where we had first seen them, we could observe that they were holding a narrow echelon formation. A stepped-up line tilted slightly to our right with the leader at the lowest point and each following craft slightly higher. At about the halfway point, the leader appeared to attempt a sudden slowing. We received this impression because the second and third wavered slightly and seemed almost to overrun the leader, so that for a brief moment during the remainder of the approach, the positions of these three varied. It looked very much as if an element of human or intelligent error had been introduced, insofar as the following two did not react soon enough when the leader began to slow down and so almost overran him in formation. What occurred next utterly astonished the pilots. The procession shot forward like a stream of tracer bullets out over the Chesapeake Bay to within a half mile of the plane. Realizing that the line was going to pass under the nose of the plane and to the right of the co-pilot, Nash quickly unfastened his seatbelt so that he could move to the window on that side. During this interval, Nash briefly lost sight of the objects. 
though Furtenberry kept them in view below the plane and both would later recollect. Altogether, they flipped on edge, the sides of the left going up and the glowing surface facing right. Though the bottom surfaces did not become clearly visible, we had the impression that they were unlighted. The exposed edges, almost unlighted, appeared to be about 15 feet thick, and the top surface at least seemed flat. In shape and proportion, they were much like coins. While all were on the edgewise position, the last five slid over and passed the leader so that the echelon was now tail foremost, so to speak, the top or last craft now being nearest to our position. This shift had taken only a brief second and was completed by the time Nash reached the window. Both pilots then observed the discs flip back from on edge to the flat position and the entire line dart off to the west in a direction that formed a sharp angle with their initial course, holding the new formation. The pilots had noticed that the object seemed to dim slightly just prior to the abrupt angular turn and had brightened considerably after making it. Attempting to describe the object's extreme actions, Nash proposed the only descriptive comparison we can offer is a ball ricocheting off a wall. An instant later, two more identical objects darted out past the right wing, from behind and under the airplane at the same altitude of the others, and quickly fell in behind the receding procession. They observed that these two seemed to glow considerably brighter than the others, as though applying power to catch up. As they stared at them dumbfounded, suddenly the lights of all the objects blinked out, only to reappear a moment later, maintaining a low altitude out across the blackness of the bay, until about ten miles behind Newport News, when they began climbing in a graceful arc that carried them well above the plane's altitude. Sweeping upward, they randomly blinked out and finally vanished in the dark night sky. Describing the disappearance of the object some years later, Nash wrote, As they climbed, they oscillated up and down behind one another in an irregular fashion, as though they were extremely sensitive to control. In doing this, they went vertically past one another, bobbing up and down. Just as the front three went horizontally past one another, as the initial six approached us, this appeared to be an intelligence error, lousing up the formation, they called it. They, dis they disappeared by blinking out in a mixed-up fashion, in no particular order. We stared after them, dumbfounded, and probably open-mouthed. We looked around at the sky half expecting something else to appear, although nothing did. There were flying saucers, and we had seen them. What we had witnessed was so stunning and incredible that we could readily believe that if either of us had seen it alone, we would not have believed the other. He would have hesitated to report it, even. But here we were, face to face. We couldn't both be mistaken about such a striking spectacle. The time was 8.12 Eastern Standard Time. As the reality of their experience dawned on them, the first question which came to mind was whether anybody else on board had seen the spectacle. Fortenberry went through the small forward passenger compartment where the captain was intent on paperwork. In the main cabin, a cautious inquiry whether anyone had seen anything unusual produced no results. 
Back in the cockpit, the pilots radioed Norfolk and gave their position according to schedule, and upon receiving confirmation, added a second message to be forwarded to the military. Two pilots of this flight observed eight unidentified objects in the vicinity Langley Field. Estimated speed at excess of 1,000 miles per hour. Altitude estimated at 2,000 feet. At this point, Captain Kopke came forward and took over control of the DC-4, while Nash and Fortenberry went to work reconstructing the sighting. With a Dalton Mark 7 computer, they determined the object's angle of approach, and the same for the angle of departure. The difference between the two was about 30 degrees. Therefore, the objects had made a 150-degree change of course almost instantaneously. They were able to accurately determine their positions visually and by referencing to their position of the VHF range of Norfolk. The objects first appeared beyond and to the east of Newport News and came toward the DC-4 in a straight line. They changed direction beneath the airplane and departed in a straight line to the west once again, passing a suburban edge of Newport News and seemed to travel out over a dark area before they began to climb steeply into the night sky. They determined that Newport News was 25 miles away and added the additional 10 and 30 miles that they estimated the objects had traveled in each direction, arriving at a total distance of 90 miles. To be conservative, they decided to use 50 miles, since they had seen them traveling at least that distance. Determining the time accurate, they reenacted the exact sequence of events seven times, and using the panel stopwatch clocks, determined that the time period did not exceed 12 seconds each time. Again, to be conservative, they adopted 15 seconds in the final computation, which meant that the objects were flying at the rate of 200 miles per minute, or 12,000 miles per hour at the slowest. They estimated that the objects were slightly more than a mile below the plane, or about 2,000 feet above ground level. And by mentally comparing their appearance with the wing spread of a DC-3 at that distance, judged the size to be approximately 100 feet in diameter with 15 feet thickness of the craft. Determinations of distance, size, and speed are always open to question by the fact that the objects observed were identified or were unidentified phenomena. However, this particular incident was especially unique in the sense that the pilots observing the object between the ground and the plane. Most sightings occur against an empty sky without any standard of comparison to known established finite distance or speed. Nash later qualified his ability to estimate the altitude of the objects in a letter to astrophysicist Dr. Donald M. Menzel. We had both flown many thousands of hours at either 7,000 or 8,000 feet because these altitudes were high enough to avoid most turbulence but not so high as to starve us for oxygen. Hence, a sort of instinct judgment about the height of objects gradually develops. If, after 10,000 hours of flying at the same altitude, a pilot cannot judge if something or even an unfamiliar something is halfway between his plane and the ground and split that in half again, he best quit. Our judgment after seeing these things travel nearly a hundred miles and observing them both from a distance and almost directly beneath us was that they were holding 2,000 feet for most of the observed time. Further, both Nash and Fortenberry had served in the Navy during the war, War II, in which Nash flew patrol bombers for the Naval Air Transport Service patrolling between the African and South American coastlines in search of German submarines. 
Fortenberry served in the U.S. Navy Air Experimental Wing for two years, as well as aware of aeronautical developments of the time. In naval training, both pilots had received intensive instruction in aircraft identification and had learned to identify every ship in the German Navy. While Nash and Fortenberry were still discussing the matter, the lights of a northbound airliner came into view on a course about 1,000 feet above them. Ordinarily, the head-on approach of two airliners at 500 miles per hour seems fairly rapid, but in this instance, compared to the streaking speed of the discs, the oncoming planes seemed to be standing still. If any normal happening could have increased the effect of the night's experience, it was just as commonplace events. They landed at Miami International Airport shortly after midnight. Upon entering the operations office, they found a copy of the message they had transmitted to the military through Norfolk with an addition. Advised crewed five jets were in the area at the time. This didn't exactly apply since the things they had seen were eight in number, and they were dead sure they were not jets. At 7 a.m., Air Force investigators telephoned, and an appointment was set for an interview later that morning. United States Air Force Wing Intelligence Officer Major John H. Sharp and four officers from the 7th District Office of Special Investigations met Nash and Fortenberry at the airport. In separate rooms, the pilots were questioned for one hour and 45 minutes and following that for a half hour together. The pilots were duly impressed by the skill and thoroughness of their interrogators. Questions had been prepared in advance and posed individually to the two pilots in order to evaluate their recall. Map overlays were compared and they had a complete weather report for the area, which coincided with the previous night's flight plan. It stated, 3 8 cirrus clouds about 20,000 feet, no inversion and a sharp and clear night. Probably unstable air. Visibility was unusually good. Following the interview, the investigators advised the pilots that they had already received seven additional reports from persons who had witnessed similar incidents within 30 minutes of their report in the same area. The best was from a lieutenant commander and his wife, who described a formation of red discs traveling at high speed and making immediate directional changes without a turning radius. Being told that... Their particular experience was by no means unique, surprised both of the pilots. None of these reports appear in the official Blue Book files, though three reports requested by ATIC in August described multiple objects converting over Washington, D.C. at 9 a.m., the morning of this sighting. Fortunately, NICAP retained copies of some of the confirmatory reports of the events of July 14th, which were published in the Norfolk newspaper. Although none of the reported sightings appear to describe the identical maneuvers that the pilots witnessed, a couple are sufficiently similar to be taken as reasonable substantiations. For example, one witness stated that she and her friend were sitting on a bench in Stockley Gardens when they saw what appeared to be flying saucers circling overhead and then going north. She said they saw seven or eight altogether, the first three white and the others were yellow and red. In a letter to the editor of the Norfolk Virginian Pilot, the naval officer from the cruiser Roanoke apparently mentioned to Nash and Fortenberry during the OSI investigation report that he had sighted eight red lights in the direction of Point Comfort that proceeded in a straight line and then disappeared. He saw the objects at about 8.55 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. 
approximately 15 minutes before the pilot sighted, as he was driving towards the naval base for a 9 p.m. appointment. Especially interesting is that as a result of the press coverage of the Pan American pilot sighting the following day, Paul R. Hill, an aerodynamicist from the NASA Langley facility, decided to watch the sky for UFOs on the evening of July 16th, expecting conformance to a pattern. He parked at the waterfront a little before 8 p.m. and soon observed two amber-colored objects approach from the south and turn west, taking them directly overhead. At this point, the objects curiously appeared to be alternatively jumping forward of each other slightly. Then, after passing the zenith, they made an astounding maneuver. They began to revolve around a common center, and after a few revolutions, switched to a vertical plane. Within a few more seconds, two more similar objects joined the first two, before all four headed south. Hill later wrote, Up to that point, I had been just a fascinating specter. A spectator. Now they had convinced me. At that moment, I realized that here were visitors from another world. There is a lot of truth in the old saying, it's different when it happens to you. It was within my line of business to know that no earthcraft could remotely approach these maneuvers. This sighting prompted Paul Hill, a lifelong study collecting and analyzing sightings reports for physical properties and the propulsion possibilities in an attempt to make technological sense of the unconventional objects. The study was eventually published posthumously under the title Unconventional Flying Objects, a Scientific Analysis, published by Hampton Roads 1995, in which Hill presents his thesis that UFOs obey, not defy, the laws of physics. At the time of these sightings, flying saucers had been big news for many weeks, and a staff of nine at Project Blue Book were swamped with sighting report far more than they could properly deal with. By mid-July, they were getting about 20 reports a day, and frantic calls from intelligence officers at every Air Force base in the U.S. included. The reports they were getting were good ones and could not be easily explained. In fact, the unexplained sightings were running about 40% of all reported sightings. All this was leading inexorably to the following weekend when UFOs were picked up by radar at Washington National Airport and restricted airspace over the nation's capital and would become one of the most highly publicized UFO sightings in history. For those reasons, the Nash-Fortenberry sightings received a less than adequate investigation. Project Blue Book quickly determined that the five jets flying out of Langley Air Force Base could not have possibly been responsible for the sightings, and the case was dropped and filed as a true unknown. It was not until 1962 that the case would be re-examined by the director of the Harvard College Observatory, astrophysicist Donald H. Menzel, and published in his book, The World of Flying Saucers, a scientific examination of a major myth of the space age. At the time, Professor Charles A. Manny, a physicist at Defiance College, had been engaged in a rather lengthy correspondence with Dr. Manzel. And when the Nash-Fortenberry sightings came up, Manny forwarded copies of the correspondence to Nash, then an advisor to NICAP, the National Investigations Committee of Aerial Phenomenon. This led to a series of lengthy correspondence over a six-month period between Nash and Dr. Manzel, proving considerable insight into the process by which Manzel arrived at his eventual solution to the inexplainable sighting. 
excuse me. Based on the meager data contained in the official report, Menzel assumed that the sighting could be reasonably explained as a reflection in the cockpit windows, especially considering the nearly instantaneous reversal of direction which seems to defy the laws of physics pertaining to inertia. In support of this explanation, he underscores the apparent failure of the crew and Air Force investigators to make any tests for possible reflections, and generally called into question the credibility of the pilots. In a fairly scathing letter, Nash remonstrated Menzel on this critical point. Dr. Menzel, quote, begins, Regardless of your figures, the western horizon was not quite bright, and regarding your reflection theory, in the first place, the objects were between us and the west. In the second place, they would have had to be damned persistent, consistent, and impossible reflections to have manifested in three cockpit windows in exactly the same way. We first observed them through the front window as they approached and I moved across the cockpit. I kept my eyes on the objects and saw them through the curved window of the windshield, and we both finished our observations looking through the right side window. That is why there is no evidence, as you complained to Dr. Manny, that the pilots considered what they saw as a reflection, and you state that we were too excited by what we saw to make the most elementary scientific tests. Again, doctor, pilots do not excite easily, and they would not be airline pilots if this easily confused. Please, a little respect for the profession. Dr. Manzel's next line of inquiry concerned whether the reflection could have been caused by an illumination within the cockpit or possibly a hostess taking a drag of a cigarette. Dr. Manny's rather sardonic response to this possibility was quite a long drag, wouldn't you say? But nevertheless, the pilots weren't smoking. The cockpit door was closed. There were no hostesses on the flight, and the pilots observed the object's reversal out of the right window below the plane. This pretty well convinced Menzel that an internal reflection was unlikely to explain the phenomenon and that what Captain Nash had seen was something outside the plane. Still, Dr. Menzel concluded that Nash's observations are completely consistent with the theory that the discs were immaterial images made of light. Therefore, to explain the sighting, he theorized that a temperature inversion can lead to a sharp concentration of haze, ice crystals, smoke, or other particles in relatively thin layers. The layer is often invisible until the plane actually goes through it when it appears as a thin, bright, hazy line that disappears a moment later when the plane breaks through it. Multiple layers of such haze are not unknown, and stacked one on top of another, they could sharply focus searchlights shining at night through a series of such hazy layers showing up as a series of discs. As the searchlight moves, the discs would appear to spread out, exhibiting perspective, and as the searchlight turns around, the discs would appear to ricochet. The sounds of this theory, depending on the prevailing weather conditions, since the official report for that evening indicated that there were no temperature inversions present, Dr. Menzel carefully constructed a scenario in which inversions albeit in a meteorological parlance, a subrefractive condition, could have been present through undetectable by radar and weather services. (laughs) 
In the summer of 1952, all the eastern states were suffering from an intense heat wave and a drought, and the ground cooled rapidly after sunset because of the lack of moisture and cloud cover during the day. In a period of heat and drought, the nightly cooling produces marked inversions favorable to extreme refractions and reflections. Small in extent, existing only briefly in one place, but constantly changing locations. Such inversions may not be detectable by radiosonic observations. <laughs> Dr. Menzel admitted that his solution does not identify the particular beacon or searchlights responsible for the sightings or the multiple witnesses on the ground. Although he suggests that a light on the Virginia coast shining northwest toward the plane could easily have been spread out into a series of images like those observed. Apparently, the location of the light is assumed to be at the point of the pilot's initial sighting, a red glow and beyond to the east of Newport News. This begs the question, why experienced pilots could not identify an apparently fixed high-intensity red spotlight source if it was emanating from a position 20 mile, 25 miles in front and below and directed toward their aircraft from the ocean? Since the disks were organized in a stepped-up echelon, while the leading disk at the lowest point would have deduced that the source of light must have been from behind the aircraft, had the light source been in front of the aircraft, as Dr. Menzel postulates, uh, the leading disk would have appeared in the highest position in the echelon. Furthermore, the searchlight reflecting off the uh, horizontal cloud layer at an oblique angle to the observer would produce a gradual elongation of the disk as it moves relative to the observer, not away from it. Nor does the theory account for the two disks that darted out from under the plane and can join the original six before disappearing into the night sky, or the mechanism that would be needed to in fact make the disks appear to flip vertically on edge as well as fly into the sky. Reverse positions in formation while maintaining relative distance and then flip back to the horizontal plane while executing a 150 degree course change, as well as in the words of the investigative officer Major John Sharp, a speed fantastic to even contemplate. Oh, also, incidentally, the highest estimated speed is 90 miles in 12 seconds, which equals 27,000 miles per hour. In his book, Dr. Menzel asserts that his solution offers a highly probable explanation that is consistent with all observations and does not depend on the presence of an extraterrestrial hypothesis. I have to agree with the latter part of the statement, but have no doubt the readers will find further inconsistencies in Dr. Menzel's impractical solutions for other cases. Some years later, in early 1957, Bill Fortenberry was lost in a Boeing B-377 Stratocruiser uh, crash in the Pacific Ocean, with all on board. In the early 60s, Captain Nash transferred to Germany and for the next 15 years flew the Berlin corridors before retiring from Pan America. In a recent interview for the Sign uh, Oral History Project, a silvivacious Captain Nash provided their concluding supposition. Looking at the thing shook us up. We, shared, we stared at each other. 
And then all of a sudden there was this realization that our world is not alone in the universe because nothing could have advanced to that degree of scientific progress without some of the intermediate steps having become public knowledge or at least known to the people who are flying it. Bill had just come out of the Navy and was fully acquainted with the latest developments in all aircraft. We just knew that they were not from this planet. I know to this day that it was nothing from this planet. And that was Captain William B. Nash in 2002. And that was the Norfolk case, 1952. Norfolk, Virginia sighting. Which will be the first in three back-to-back sightings in the Atlantic seaboard. that would indeed see UFOs flying over the White House, the Senate building, in fact, the entire city of Washington, D.C. on two separate occasions. This is the first night. July 19th the 20th, 1952, Washington, D.C., from 11.40 p.m. to 6 a.m., numerous visual radar and radar visual sightings by ground observers and pilots in the air. The events lasted for six hours and 20 minutes. A few days prior to the incident, a scientist from an agency that I can't name, who is a whistleblower of mine, the report says, we're talking about the buildup of reports along the east coast of the United States. At the end of the two-hour conversation, the scientist made a prediction. From a study of the UFO reports that he was getting from the Air Force headquarters, and from the discussions with his colleagues, he said that he thought we were sitting right on top of a big keg full of loaded saucers. Within the next few days, he told me, and I remember that he repunctured his slow, deliberate remarks by hitting the desk with his fist, they're going to blow up, and you're going to have the granddaddy of all UFO sightings. The sightings will occur in Washington, or New York, and he predicted probably Washington. Washington National's control tower radar room was an exceptionally busy place the night of the UFOs visited Washington, D.C. Personnel on duty that night using limited range radar verified on numerous occasions the radar sightings of the UFOs reported by senior air traffic controller Harry Barnes. This case is item 23 on a list of 51 total items, 41 of which are air technical intelligence UFO reports cleared for Donald Kehoe by Albert M. Chop Air Force Press Desk. This particular case is one of two incidents, the other being the radar visual on July 26th, 27th of 1952, days later. This is the first 
It was July 19th to the 20th, 1952. The scene was the Air Traffic Control Center at Washington National Airport, Washington, D.C. At 11 p.m., eight traffic experts headed by Senior Controller Harry G. Barnes entered the radar room and took over the eight-hour shift. The night was clear. The radar system used had a main scope 24 inches in diameter. The range was 100 miles, and the sweep rate was 10 seconds. Traffic was light. They were tracking an airliner a few miles from the airport. Every 10 seconds, the sweep painted the airliner's new position, so that there were seven blips on the screen before the first one faded. Recognizing the targets and where they were and what they were doing was what these men did every day. Many lives hung in this balance, especially when traffic was heavy. At 11.30 p.m., Barnes went to the supervisor's desk, leaving controller Ed Nugent at the main scope. Two other controllers, Jim Ritchie and James Copeland, were standing a few feet away. At exactly 11.40, seven sharp blips suddenly appeared on the scope. They either came in from above or flew in between the 10-second sweeps. But there they were, in the southwest quadrant, just east and a little south of Andrews Air Force Base. Nugent ordered Copeland and to get Barnes. Both consoles showed the strange blips. Barnes buzzed the tower and got a hold of Howard Coughlin. Coughlin said the scope showed the same targets and he reported that he could actually see one of the objects in the night sky as a bright orange light. Now really alarmed, Barnes notified that the Air Defense Command. When he got back to the main scope, the objects had separated. Can you imagine what went through these men's minds? A cluster of unidentified targets drops in out of nowhere, then stops, then fans out to prohibited flying areas. Two were over the White House. Another was near the Capitol. Barnes, without taking his eyes off the screen, contacted Andrews Air Force Base across the Potomac in Maryland. Andrews confirmed the targets in the same locations. Barnes asked if they were scrambling some jets. Andrews' jets were at Newcastle, Delaware, near Wilmington, while their runway was under repair. Barnes told the other controllers that the jets had come from Delaware, which meant at least a half hour. So for several minutes, they tracked the objects. Jim Ritchie noticed one was pacing a Capital airliner, which had just taken off. The pilot, Captain Casey Pierman, was vectored toward the object. Until then, the object's tracking speed had been about 130 miles per hour. Suddenly, to all the controller's amazement, its track came to an abrupt end, where the next blip should have been was only a blank space. Right after that, Pierman called back. He said he saw the thing, but it streaked off out of sight in three to five seconds. Apparently, the object had zoomed completely out of the radar beam between the 10-second sweeps. That indicates the object went 130 miles per hour to around 500 miles per hour in, a, in seconds. A short count. So, yeah, seconds. A few minutes later, it got even more interesting. One blip track showed an abrupt 90-degree turn, something we could not do. Then, when the sweep came around, another object suddenly reversed. 
its new blip blossoming on top of the one it had just made. From over 100 miles per hour, the mystery object had stopped dead and completely reversed its direction, all in about five seconds. I've seen this myself while on Skywatch, the editor notes. On top of that, a startling report came in from the tower. Operator Joe Zacco had been watching the ASR scope, built to track high-speed objects. One of the objects was traveling at a fantastic rate across the screen and was racing over Andrews Field toward Riverdale. Zacco called Coughlin and they both computed the speed, two miles per second at 7,200 miles per hour. From the trail, it was plain that the object had descended vertically into the ASR beam, leveled off for a few seconds, and then climbed at tremendous speed out of the beam again. The jets had still not arrived. The objects had been circling Washington, D.C. for almost two full hours, and controllers, nervous, were getting taut. Tower men and pilots were reporting visual sightings, Two or three times, Barnes noted that the objects darted away the instant he gave pilots directions for interception, as if though they were hearing his transmissions. Not once did a pilot get close enough to see behind the mysterious aura of light. It was almost 2 a.m. when the Air Force jets arrived in Washington. Just before that, the UFOs had vanished. Five minutes after the jets left, the UFOs were back all over Washington. One of them followed a Capital airliner close to the airport until it landed, then raced away. At one point during the night, all three radars had picked up a target three miles north of the Riverdale radio beacon, north of Washington, D.C., for 30 seconds, the three radar operators compared notes op about the target over the intercom. Then suddenly the target was gone, and it left all three scopes simultaneously, which is recorded. Then an ARTC controller called Andrews Air Force Base and told them they had a target south of their tower, directly over the Andrews Radio Range Station. The operators looked and saw a huge, fiery orange sphere hovering in the sky directly over their range station. By sunup, the UFOs ended their five hours of maneuvering over Washington, but before they left at 4.30 a.m., a radar engineer by the name of E.W. Chambers was leaving the WRC transmitter station when he saw five huge disks circling in loose formation. The objects tilted upward and climbed steeply into the sky. The Air Force tried hard to play the Washington sightings down, First, they denied Andrews Field had tracked the UFOs. One spokesman consisted the control center scope was defective, and then another spokesman denied fighters were scrambled. At Dayton, Ohio, the headquarters for Project Blue Book, teletypes were churning out 30 reports a day, and Captain Ruppelt said that many were as good, if not better, than the Washington, D.C. sightings. This part of the Washington National Sightings is mysteriously missing from Project Blue Book's 701 Unknowns. The only sighting I listed in the Air Force is unknown for that period was Case 1504, July 20th of Levelette, New Jersey. Reports to the Air Force rose to 40 per day. About a third of them were unknowns. 
I find it odd that when the UFOs returned to Washington one week later, those were listed as unknowns. Maybe it was because there were so many good UFO sightings during that week, to name a few. Originally, there were 22 unknowns listed from July 21st to the 28th of 1952, which covered the period of both Washington National Sighting incidents, July 19th and the July 26th sighting. As mentioned in the beginning of this report, the following is the updated list of all the sightings, which includes the unknowns for the entire 1952 UFO sighting wave. Then, on the 26th of July, UFOs were up to something over military bases, including Travis Air Force Base, California, a military base in Kansas City, Missouri, and Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Late that evening, the UFOs were back over Washington again for the July 26-27 incident. The second night, UFOs return to Washington, D.C. This article is from Life Magazine. Life Magazine, August 4th, 1952. Something's over the Capitol. Something's over the Capitol are traced on radar. The Washington blips. The most startling flying saucer incidents recently reported have taken place during the past two weeks over Washington, D.C., and threatened to make politics take a back seat in the most political of American cities. Therefore, the first time, mysterious objects in the sky were recorded by ground observers, by pilots in airplanes, and on radar screens, all at the same time. And for the first known time, the United States Air Force sent its jet planes up in an attempt to intercept the objects. The incidents began on Sunday, July the 20th of 1952. At 12.40 a.m., the radar operator at the CAA Traffic Controller Center in Washington was going quietly about his task of directing the traffic of commercial planes in this area, which appear on his radar screen as little moving blips of light. Suddenly, several strange blips appeared denoting the presence of something in the sky 15 miles southwest of the city. As he looked at them, they disappeared, then popped up over northwest Washington. Startled, he called Harry Barnes, a senior controller of the radar room. In a few minutes, everyone in the radar room was gathered around the scope. The unidentified blimps were browning all over and performing most remarkably. Some seemed to hover idly, some reversed themselves back and forth, others sped along, making right and left 90-degree turns as they pleased. When they appeared to zoom over such targets as the Pentagon and the White House, Barnes became seriously alarmed. He'd sent two expert technicians to see if the intricate electronics gear was out of order. It wasn't. Next, he called the control towers of the National Airport in Andrews Field, an Air Force base just outside of Washington. He was hoping that their observations might actually see the objects which he, in his windowless room, deep inside the building, could detect only on radar. An observer at Andrews Field went outside to look at the sky and saw a bright orange light. At the same time, a mechanic on an airstrip, who knew nothing of what was going on, called in to report that he had seen the same strange object. 
During the night, the National Airport Tower radar and the Andrews Field radar had recorded an object at the same place. There it was, something fixed on three different radar scopes confirmed by two ground eyewitnesses. Barnes immediately called the Air Defense Command, hoping for the arrival of jet fighters any minute. Barnes went back to his radar. The blips were still there, so he radioed a commercial plane which was just taken off from the National Airport and asked its pilots, C.S. Pierman, if he would change his course. The blips continue. The intercept a target that Barnes could see on his radar. Pierman agreed. And the confusion... This is a lot of recapping what we just read. Which followed is not clear whether Pierman saw exactly the same objects and Barnes was tracking on his radar. But the pilots did see six strange lights, white and star-like, speeding across the heavens. Conceivably, there could have been shooting stars or meteors for they fell at a slight angle. But the next three, which were observed, shot horizontally across the sky. These were tailless and seemed slower than meteors. Although Barnes had not estimated that some of the objects dawdled along as slowly as 130 miles per hour, others went so fast that his radar could not track them. However, the radars of the airport towers, apparently capable of tracking faster-moving bodies, were able to fix on the object long enough to show that their speed was 7,200 miles per hour. It was not until 3 a.m., two, two hours after Barnes' call, that all the uh, radar-equipped jet fighters roared. Sorry about that. It was not until 3 a.m., two hours after Barnes' call, that radar-equipped jet fighters roared from their Delaware base and called Barnes to, by radio. They reported that they saw nothing. Barnes agreed that there was no unidentified targets on a scope at the moment. The planes, low on fuel, returned to base. Only shortly thereafter, the blips were erupting all over the radar scope again. One appeared next to the regular blip of Capital Airlines Flight 610 coming in from the south. Barnes called pilot Howard Dermont and told him to look at his window. On to the night, the ghostly demonstration proceeded. Usually the unknown objects darted over the screen at random, but when an airliner appeared, the area of the blips turned up around it, swarming it. Just before daybreak, Barnes rarely observed 10 of the objects at one time. Then, as commercial air traffic grew heavy, the shaken chief and his cohorts were forced to give up their eerie vigil. The blips again. The following Saturday night, the blips began all over again. At 9.08 p.m., they appeared on the CAA radar screens, where the others had been noticed almost a week before. There were five or six of them moving in a southerly direction. Harry Barnes again called both Airport Traffic Tower and Andrews Field Air Force Base to see if the radar showed the blips, which they did. After tracking the blips for half an hour, Barnes began radioing, radioing airliners. United Airlines Flight 640 radioed, I see a very dim light. Barnes radioed back, you are now where three blips are. One's here, radioed 640. We got him in sight. He's real, real pretty. At that instant, Andrews reported to Barnes that they had seen three strange lights streaking across the sky. More planes reported lights. Some others did not. At 1044, a CAA patrol plane, the NC-12, radioed that he saw a cluster of them, lights that are white and sometimes yellowish. They seem to change in intensity. Now there goes one, falling fast. 
A few minutes later, the NC-12 reported a group of five lights at 2,200 feet altitude. Suddenly, all blips disappeared from the screen. Soon, they were back. Barnes had already notified the Pentagon Command Post, the High Brass in Washington, and the Air Defense Command. From their Delaware base, F-94 jet interceptors again barreled down towards Washington, D.C. They they arrived at 11.25 p.m. and howled over the city. What happened then is in dispute. Officials in the radar room firmly state that a pilot reported contact at 11.25 p.m. with four lights 10 miles away and 500 feet above him. He closed at full throttle for two minutes, but the lights disappeared at a tremendous speed, outpacing him. Another contact was made a few minutes later and was similarly broken off after the unidentified flying object accelerated to tremendous speeds. Other planes made no contacts, although there were blips on their radar screens while the planes were in the area. But when questioned by Life magazine, the pilots themselves denied any certain visual contacts with aerial lights or unidentified objects. The attitude of the Air Force during the July incidents was puzzling. When the first appearance of the blips was reported in Washington newspaper, no mention was made of the jet's interceptors. In the fact, the Air Force stated that it had sent none up. But when confronted by the facts by Time, Life, Washington correspondent Clay Blair Jr., who gathered the material for this article, the Air Force finally admitted that it had indeed sent fighters up. No reason has been given for this contradiction. The Air Force might have been embarrassed by the delay and supplying the planes to intercept, or it might possibly have known more about the blips than it has admitted for national security reasons. There is another puzzle. Experienced airline pilots could see lights where the radar reported the blips. Air Force planes said they could not. End article for Life magazine. What's strange is that I just noticed that most of the links on this nightcap.org page are actually 404 and not currently maintained. And by that I mean every single one of them is 404 from the Kehoe Ridge article, phone reports. Those are still available, six pages of phone reports, but they're in handwriting. Go ahead and try to find the chronology. 
And that's really the information that's available on the second night of sightings. Here's a little smaller article. July 26, 27 of 1952, the U.S. relied upon radar World War II vintage to defend its vast airspaces. Secretly, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff had been working on a permanent national radar network, which was meant to be in place by the 1st of July, 1952, which had been identified as the critical date when the Soviets would pose a dangerous threat. This famous case is item 23 on a list of 51 items, 41 of which are Air Force Technical Intelligence UFO reports, clear from Donald Kehoe. By, Robert M., by Albert M. Chap, Air Force Press Desk. Imagine what it must have been like in 1952 to have UFOs overflying the nation's capital, tracked by radar and jet interceptors, being scrambled. Not only did this actually happen on July 26-27, but it had happened previously on July 19th and the 20th as well. The action covered a wide area of the Atlantic seaboard, and this directory covers the official records and press releases which followed. The events of July 19th, 20 are covered in a separate report. Now, if you guys could see what I see, the first link is called The Sauces Return to Washington it's from 1952, 404. And then uh, radio reports, those I have six pages of, I'll post those. The next article, 404. Logger reports, 404. Washington newspaper articles, July 28, 1952, 404. Washington, D.C., Night of the Saucers by Dan Wilson, 404. UFO in Washington, D.C. area, published 1979, 404. Newspaper articles during period from BB Files, 404. Comments of researcher Dr. James F. McDonald, 404. CIA memo, 404. Something's over the Capitol. That's the life uh, article I just read. So that's one out of, you know, or so we got two or three out of, uh, you know, these are 15 so far. Another 404. Washington National Sightings File by the Coupon Group. Project Blue Book Case, 1661, 404. Observed on ATC radars. Study of unknown objects. This is the original, I guess, released technical data on the radar, which proves that they were concrete returns and signals. Excellent material. I just downloaded that. And then the chronology, which is 404. But I will currently look that up right now, see if I pull up anything. Those were the cases of the Atlantic Seaboard UFO wave, 1952 wave, or the Washington, D.C. wave. Which occurred over the summer, 1952, over massively secure and highly sensitive airspaces not only of the military, which is the United States Navy, as well as the Pentagon, national security statuses, but also just highly populated civilian areas with many airports 
which simultaneously cited and responded to these occurrences. This is the Wikipedia article. So this is an actual official mainstream article from the events from modern day from the events of July 19th, 20th on those dates. At 11.40 p.m. on Saturday, July 19th, 1952, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller at Washington National Airport, spotted seven objects on his radar. The objects were located 15 miles south-southwest of the city. No known aircraft were in the area, and the objects were not following any established flight paths. Nugent's superior, Harry Barnes, a senior air traffic controller at the airport, watched the objects on Nugent's radar scope. He later wrote, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary or conventional aircraft. Barnes had two controllers check Nugent's radar. They found that it was working normally. Barnes then called National Airport's radar-equipped control tower. The controllers there, Howard Coughlin and Joe Zacco, said that they had also had unidentified blimps of the radar screen and saw a hovering bright light in the sky, which departed with incredible sp speeds. Coughlin asked Zacco, Did you see that? What the hell was that? At this point, other objects appeared in all sectors of the radar scope. When they moved over the White House in the United States Capitol, Barnes called Andrews Air Force Base, located 10 miles from National Airport. Although Andrews reported that they had no unusual objects on their radar, an airman soon called the base's control tower to report the sightings of a strange object. Airman William Bandy, or Brady, who was in the tower, then saw an object which appeared to be like an orange ball of fire, trailing a tail. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. As Brady tried to alert the other personnel in the tower, the strange object took off at unbelievable speeds. On one of National Airport's runways, S.C. Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, was waiting in the cockpit of his DC-4 for permission to take off. He spotted what he believed to be a meteor. He was told that the object's control tower's radar had detected unknown objects closing in on its position. Pyramid observed six objects, white, tailless, fast-moving lights, over a 14-minute period. Pyramid was in radio contact with Barnes during this sighting, and Barnes later related that each sighting coincided with a pip we could not see, or we could see near his plane. When he reported that the light streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared simultaneously on our scope. Meanwhile, at Andrews Air Force Base, the control tower personnel were tracking on radar what some thought to be unknown objects, but others suspected, and in one instance were able to prove, were simply stars and meteors. However, Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport observed an orange-red light to the south. The light would appear to stand still, then make an abrupt change in direction and altitude. This happened several times. At one point, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar centers at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking an object hovering over a radio, a radio beacon. The object vanished in all three radar centers in the same time. At 3 a.m. shortly before two United States Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from the Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington, all of the objects vanished from the radar at National Airport. However, when the jets ran low on fuel and left, the objects returned. 
which convinced Barnes that the UFOs were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly. The objects were last detected by radar at 5.30 a.m. The events of July 26th and 27th. At 8.15 p.m. on Saturday, July 26, 1952, a pilot and stewardess on a National Airlines flight into Washington, D.C. observed some lights above their plane. Within minutes, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking more unknown objects. United States Air Force Master Sergeant Charles E. Cummings visually observed the objects at Andrews. He later said that these lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars. They were no trails. They traveled faster than any shooting star I have ever seen. Meanwhile, Albert M. Chop, the press spokesman for Project Blue Book, arrived at National Airport and, due to security concerns, denied several reporters' requests to photograph the radar screens. He then joined the radar center personnel. By this time, 9.30 p.m., the radar center was detecting unknown objects in every sector. At times, the objects traveled slowly. At other times, they reversed direction and moved across the radar scope at speeds calculated at up to 7,000 miles per hour. At 11.30 p.m., two U.S. Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington, D.C. Captain John McHugo, the flight leader, was vectored towards the radar blips but saw nothing despite repeated attempts. However, his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, did see four white glows that chased them both. He told investigators that, and said, I tried to make contact with the bogeys below 1,000 feet and that I was at a, my maximum speed, but I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance of overtaking them. According to Albert Chop, when ground control asked Patterson if he saw anything, Patterson replied, I see them now. They're all around me. What should I do? And nobody answered because we didn't know what to tell him. After midnight on July 27th, the United States Air Force Major Dewey Fournette, Project Blue Book's liaison with the Pentagon, and Lieutenant John Holcomb, a United States Navy radar specialist, arrived at the radar center at National Airport. During the night, Lieutenant Holcomb received a call from the Washington National Weather Station. They told him that a slight temperature inversion was present over the city but Holcomb felt that the inversion was not nearly strong enough to explain the good and solid returns on the radar scope. Fournette relayed that all those present in the radar room were convinced that the targets were most likely caused by solid metallic objects. They had been weather targets or the scope too, he said, but this was a common occurrence and the controllers were paying no attention to them, not mistaking them. Two more F-94s were Newcastle Air Force Base were scrambled during the night. One pilot saw nothing unusual, and the other pilot saw a white light which vanished when he moved towards it. Civilian aircraft also reported glowing objects that corresponded to radar blips seen by Andrews radar operators. As on July 20th, the sightings and unknown radar returns ended at sunrise. This case was investigated by White House officials as well as the CIA, Air Force, United States Navy, FBI, FAA, and he's going down to just different government organizations at the time, which I'm sure NRO, every single, basically, Office of Current Intelligence, OCI, Scientific Intelligence, OSI, 
basically every every single government organization investigated this case. And that's how important it was to the federal government at the time. And as you can tell, there was a pervasive attitude of the cover-up within the military, especially the Air Force, when it comes to terms of disclosure to the press. But because the case was so widespread as a wave, as a UFO wave of the Atlantic seaboard in 1952, not just Washington, D.C., and over so many secured areas, that the actual attitudes of the population and the majority of the people involved was one of excitement and preparedness, mental preparedness. Not one of hallucination or panic or mistaken identity, but an actual calling to duty to provide security for the nation as they're, you know, were sworn to by oath for universe for uniformed service personnel. This was taken incredibly serious at the time as per the listing of the government agencies, investigative bodies, and national security interest, as well as absolutely validated and vindicated by magazines like Life magazine, as well as the many different Project Blue Book investigations, the congressional hearing as well as even it being part of the 50 uh, unclassifieds from the, you know, official pressure, the 50, I guess you call those, the 50 original unknown cases, the solid proof cases that Project Blue Book couldn't even debunk, even though its entire existence was to debunk these cases. The 50 fundamental cases in American history when it comes to UFOs. Thank you very much for listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast. I've been your host, Beyond Top Secret Texan. Thank you all very much out there in Dreamland. Listeners, new and old alike, feel free to peruse the archive of old episodes or to listen to the rest of the episodes in this series. All are available for free through whatever podcast service you prefer. Apple Podcasts seems to be the most popular internationally, so if you're on Apple Podcasts, check out the library, check out the the old video. But uh, if you want to watch the videos that I post, the compilations of UFO sightings, etc., that's only available on Spotify currently. Or you can also go and check out the YouTube channel or the TikTok channel. post videos on Instagram as well. All of that, regardless of what you prefer, what you wish to see, all of the episodes can be found on my website, for example, and uh, the video, different platforms and services through Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan. Linktree slash Beyond Top Secret Texan, all one word, lowercase, will bring you all those links, and you guys can choose amongst yourselves which ones you would like to follow and subscribe to, etc. Thank you all very much. Peace out.